Empower the use of open source with software composition analysis from Revenera. All right, hello, and welcome to our second podcast in a series highlighting cybersecurity awareness. My name is Kendra Morton, and I am a Principal Product Marketing Manager at Revenera, and we are once again talking with Alex Freibach, Director of Product Management at Revenera, and he also sits on the committee that is responsible for developing Revenera's um, security program. So it's good to talk to you once again, my friend. You as well, Kendra. All right, good. So we previously in the last episode, the first episode in the series, we talked about what it takes to get a security program kind of off the ground and the importance of having a methodology and a strategy in place that is really top down. We discussed the impact of the U.S. federal government's cybersecurity executive order um, meant to secure the software supply chain and the need for organizations to focus their efforts on creating the most complete and the most accurate software bill of materials. So that's really just a quick synopsis of everything that we talked about in that first episode, but it leads us to this discussion, taking care of your applications with SCA or software composition analysis. So once an organization has taken on a security initiative, what is the benefit? This is kind of what we're getting to today. What is the benefit of integrating security with software composition analysis solution? But before we start to dive into that answer, Alex, I think it's really important that we define SCA or software composition analysis for our audience. Yeah, definitely. Um, so SCA was coined by Gartner. Um, about 12 to 13 years ago. Um, basically, when I look at SCA, it's combination of products and services, uh, which is designed to document your dependency on open source and third-party software. Now, why do you do it? You do it to manage risk. And typically it's a combination of legal risk from license compliance, security risk from open source vulnerabilities and reputation risk of not being in the headlines if your application happens to be breached. Okay, so, and I think this is an important question before we kind of really dive into the meat of this discussion, but when companies are putting in place a security program, right, um, and perhaps they're looking at vulnerabilities within their software, is it a truly complete secure program if they're not also considering license compliance? I mean, from a security perspective, it is, right? Because from security perspective, regardless of how something is licensed, uh, your concern is, is it exploitable? Uh, however, licensing is important because it's going to impact your ability to actually use a piece of open source or third-party um, software. So if you have a licensing issue, it's typically much more difficult to remediate. You can't really upgrade your way out of it. So it can certainly impact your security posture if you have to swap out components and then do a security analysis later on in the development cycle. So it's certainly not going to drive your security assessments, but it's a kind of an orthogonal assessment and making sure that it is considered uh, to know which elements you're using and whether they're okay based on your security policies. Okay, very good. So how do you operationalize software composition analysis and why is doing that important? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, lots of different answers to this one. So I'll, I'll kind of give you my perspective. Um, and, and we see across our customer base, lots of different places to start and finish and improve over time. So there, there definitely is not 
a correct answer to this. There's kind of general best practices. So I, I guess, you know, before we talk about operationalizing it, I want to kind of set the context of where SCA belongs. So typically, and we, we talked about this a little bit in the previous session, but uh, when you look at SCA and how it fits into security, um, I always look at security as kind of a, a three wedge pie chart. So you've got static code analysis that is uh, doing testing on the code your team wrote that will identify any sort of defects or implementation issues that could cause your product to be exploited at runtime. There's dynamic or pen testing, right? Dynamic uh, application security testing or pen testing. And this is really ignoring the code. It's more trying to exploit a running application. And then there's SCA. And SCA kind of fills the blind spot for third-party dependency vulnerabilities. And uh, security issues that come from code that your team did not write, but that you inherited by using other people's code, uh, typically during your build. So usually static analysis and SCA rhyme in that they're scanning the same files typically at the same time, whereas pen testing typically will occur later on in the development process when there is a running application deployed. So uh, again, important to understand kind of where SCA fits. Uh, how do you operationalize it? Again, no, no one answer. So uh, the first place I would check, and this will depend on what organization you work for, is do you have an open source review board? Do you have an open source program office? Uh, do you have a legal team that is tasked with managing open source or an open source strategy? So open source review boards are typically set up to help operationalize your open source strategy. So their their charter is beyond just which components or licenses are allowed. It's more of a holistic view on what is your inbound policy? What is your outbound policy? Do you want to uh, participate in and influence open source ecosystems? So kind of more broader strategic view. Uh, open source review boards are typically ones where you're really focused on reviewing what you're doing. So when you consume open source, is it acceptable? Uh, when you release open source or you open source applications, are you following the, pro the proper steps to make sure that you're not leaking intellectual property and you're following uh, license obligations and security protocols? All right, so, so check if those two, both an OSPO and an OSRB, if they're part of your organization. If they are, talk to them, have a conversation, have your engineering and product leaders integrate with that team to make sure that you're represented. Uh, it, whether you have it or not, the next step I go to is, do you have a policy, right? Do you have an open source policy, whether it's implied or written down somewhere? Uh, chances are you have one, although m many people may not know about it, someone has likely thought about this. So there is one somewhere. Uh, again, check with your SRB, check with your OSPO, check with your legal team. They likely have at least some starting guidance on policies. And when I think of policies, it's not just allowed and not allowed li license lists. Uh, policy needs to have roles and responsibilities outlined. So who's involved, what are their roles, what are they responsible for, who's accountable, what happens if you don't meet compliance requirements, uh, what are your exemption policies, right? How do you ask for permission to use something that by default is not allowed? So all those things need to be spelled out in your policy. Uh, then comes kind of the meat of the policy, which is, well, which licenses are always allowed, never allowed, and then everything in between. So that's important to understand. And it's important to understand how do you know, right? How do you know what you're using under which license, which bucket does that fall into? Uh, hopefully there's some training that's available because your product teams need to understand this because they're the ones selecting components and potentially uh, you know, putting a company at risk if they're doing it improperly. Um, and then the third part of a policy is gonna be your scan and approval policy. So how often do you scan? What tools do you use? What do you do with the results? 
uh, do you have to proactively ask for permission or is it a scan first and then review later policy? Uh, we've seen both. They're both effective. Just kind of a matter of what your culture is at the company and where you want to go. Um, so that's kind of the beginning. Uh, then you get to, there's going to be lots of people involved. So training is critical. Uh, it's very unfair uh, to hold the product team responsible for compliance if you haven't trained them or told them they're accountable for it. So there's lots of free training available. There's great courses by the Linux Foundation. Um, so definitely reach out, uh, go online. There's lots of kind of open source one-on-one training from both license and security perspective. Uh, typically, these courses are not very long, so it's it's good for people to have general knowledge to start, and then hopefully your organization has some training internally on specifics of your own policy. Um, so, so that's kind of the how do you get going, right? Then how do you actually operationalize it? Uh, typically, we recommend starting by integrating into the build. That's that's the easiest way to go broad across an organization. Uh, you want to not cause too much friction with engineering, so therefore integrate into the build. It's another kind of stream of automated testing. You typically want to integrate into a continuous or nightly build to get started and definitely into your bug tracking system to automatically create issues if you find things that are not compliant. Uh, developer mediation plans, right? Uh, consistency is key. You want to make sure that every developer doesn't have to figure out their own way to fix an issue. So have general guidelines, uh, have processes pre-built so that when you go to fix an issue, you're doing it in a consistent manner across product teams and across engineers. Is that part of the training as well? Um, I'm sorry, I apologize. Is that part of the training? It's part of the training, part, hopefully part of the policy. If not, you kind of build it as you go, right? So every time you encounter a new type of issue, you huddle up, you figure out how you want to deal with it. Uh, you hope you don't do it in a way where it stops development. So they, they remediate how they need to to get going. Uh, but you definitely want to circle back and say, okay, if we hit this again, did we do it the right way? Do we want to simplify it? Do we want to get feedback from other teams? Because at the end of the day, this needs to be a flow chart, right? You need to say, I found issue type X. And for issue type X, we have standard guidance on how we deal with it. If it's something odd, then go consult with your uh, OSPO or RSIB or legal security teams. Um, and then kind of the last two things are, you know, in some cases, you may need to go deeper beyond build integrated scanning. So that's kind of on an as needed basis, uh, typically driven by your risk tolerance. And this can vary a lot within an organization, hosted products, distributed products, kind of your cash cow or critical applications. Uh, you're going to have a different level of risk across those. So in some cases, you need to go deep. In other cases, automated build integrated scanning is good enough. And then kind of the most important thing is don't forget to monitor, right? Just because something was good a week ago doesn't mean there's not new vulnerabilities or there's not license changes in the future. So definitely make sure that alerting is turned on. Make sure if there's new vulnerabilities coming in, people are aware of them. And make sure to pay attention to things that are not red but are aging out. Uh, so any versions older than a couple of years, anything where you're 50 versions from the head of the tree, you definitely want to make sure that those get onto your uh, technical debt list and get burned down by the team. Yeah. So there's, there. what is the saying that there's one thing that's constant is change, right? So always be on top yes. of it. Yeah. Which also leads us to Absolutely. yeah my next question. So how do organizations meet new demands and requests from customers, new regulatory requirements. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode. Um, how do they do that? Yeah, so it, it's tough. There, There's a lot of movement. Uh, there's lots of regulations in various industries. There's lots of regulations in various countries and uh, regions. Uh, there's regulations based on customers you sell to. 
So I, I would say kind of the, so hopefully, right, your OSPO or your OSRB is staying on top of it and your policies are updated over time to kind of meet the demands. If that is not being done, then kind of the onus is on you if you're a software producer to understand, well, whom do you sell to? Which industries do you plan? Do you sell to the government? Do you sell to telcos? Do you sell to regulated industries? If so, well, what are the requirements they have? Uh, the recent executive order, although it's kind of tailored towards the U.S. government, it's been, you know, the, the concept um, behind it is already uh, in lots of regulations for various industries around PCI and, uh, you know, telco and automotive and so forth. So understanding kind of what, what box you play in, understanding who your customers are, which co countries you sell to, which industries you sell to, and what are the general rules in those industries. Uh, more specifically, if you have certain customers that in turn maybe resell an SDK they get from you to an industry that's regulated, well, they may put demands on you that the industry does not directly. So you have to understand that as well. So when you're making agreements or putting together software contracts, it's important to understand what your customers need from you to satisfy their customers downstream in the supply chain. So it's really important to understand that. Uh, if you are a software buyer, right, you're not creating software, but you're consuming it, well, now you're the one kind of putting requirements on your suppliers. So it's important to understand, again, if you're reselling, you're going to have requirements. If you are simply using, well, you need some certainty, you need some sort of assurance and, and disclosures to understand that what you're getting has been vetted under some sort of program that's reliable. This is kind of where OpenChain comes in, right? That's a good standard for if someone says we are open chain compliant, then you kind of know the maturity level of their open source program. You don't need to ask too many more questions. If they can't state that, then you really need to understand, you know, what do they do? How often do they do it? You know, are they doing something putting you at risk? Very good. So why is it important to make SCA a part of the company culture? Yeah, another good question. Very tough to do. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an obvious answer, which is people tend to forget about kind of one-off manual things, right? If you go back to the Equifax breach several years ago, I mean, the core issue at it was some person had to push a button, they forgot to push the button, right? It wasn't a standard process. It wasn't part of that team's culture. It was just another thing somebody had on a checklist on a piece of paper, and it didn't get done. And, you know, everybody knows about the consequences of it. So, you know, it, it needs to be, the team needs to understand why they're being asked to do it. They need to buy into the mission, which means it needs to become part of their company culture, or at least the team culture. Company's tougher, but at least it needs to be part of your team culture. And without understanding the why, it's just another burden you're putting on the product team. So bring them in early, you know, have meetings, have brown bag sessions. We do this at Revenera. We got lots of brown bag sessions around both security and open source mainly just to get to people, uh, to make people understand that their work matters. It contributes to the good and the bad, if not done properly. So they can understand why they're being asked to do certain compliance tasks because nobody's seeking out to do this for fun. You're doing it to make your products better and your customers safer. Um, we talk a little bit, um, last question, we talk a little bit about a security culture versus a compliance culture within an organization. Is that mm -hmm. relative here? Is that important to also consider? It's definitely relevant because in most companies, unless you're a startup of 20 people, you're going to have lots of pockets of subculture throughout the company, right? Um, so it's important to understand, you know, if you're a really small company, then typically, you know, your executives are going to drive the culture of the entire company. If it's a company like IBM with thousands of divisions and product lines, well, each team's going to have their own little mini culture. 
So you need to understand, well, what's driving the need? You know, if you have a hosted application, most likely your need is driven by security concerns. It's not so much going to be driven by license compliance. If you are distributing software to your customers, they're installing it on premise, it's going to be a different dynamic. It's going to be likely a 50-50. And in some cases, license compliance will dominate because the fact that they're installing it on premise will shield them from lots of potential vulnerability exploits. So it's, it's important to understand, number one, what's driving the need, and then kind of the differences, right? If you have a security problem, you can often upgrade your way out of it. If you have a license problem, you have to either swap, negotiate, purchase, but you have to do take more significant action to get the component under different terms. And that typically takes longer. It may cost money. It may require you to remediate lots of your code. So it's typically a longer path to fixing it than to upgrade a component to a more recent version. So it's important, again, to kind of understand why you're doing it, uh, who are, whom you're trying to serve, what your stakeholders need from you, and uh, make that the priority, right? Because you can't do everything. Don't don't boil the ocean here. Kind of pick, pick a lane, pick your top three challenges, and then work through those. Absolutely. Great. All right. Perfect, Alex. Thank you once again. Good discussion. Absolutely. Yep. So coming up for our audience, Alex and I will be back for uh, one more episode in um, our uh, cybersecurity awareness series. And I think, and I, and I believe Alex agrees with this, this is, I believe, a do not miss episode, a do not miss discussion, managing a security incident in an application. We'll answer the question about what you do, right, when you're notified there's a security issue with one of your applications. So how do you handle it? You know, what's your yep. first step? Are there preventive measures you can take to get ahead of kind of future application vulnerabilities? So all good stuff. Looking forward to it. Yep. All right. And, yep. And so, very important because no matter how well you do, your things will slip yeah. through. There's there's no such thing as perfect security. So you, you definitely need a plan on what to do when things go wrong. Uh, perfect. That's a good setup actually for that episode. So to our audience, please look for that coming up very soon. Once again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you here again real soon. Empower the use of open source with software composition analysis from Revanera.